The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Amen. Thank you, guys. Hey, grab your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, just stick a hand up nice and high, and as the other lights are actually coming on, you might even have to wave it around a little bit, but we will make sure that you get one. Um, If you don't own a Bible, that is a gift to you, and I pray that it would serve you well, that it would teach you more and more and more about how amazing God's love is for us, and specifically for you. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 4 today. This is something I've been looking forward to talking about for a while, because Galatians 3 is rough. I mean, there's a lot of technical stuff to dig through, though I think we've been blessed by seeing the grace of God in Galatians chapter 3. But Galatians chapter 4, it's one that's not only just beautiful and encouraging, but, but so speaks to our hearts. In fact, if there was a week that I wouldn't get on anyone's case for not taking notes and for just allowing God's word to wash over you, this would be a good week for that. And in particular, um, this is one that touches home really personally for me, because we're going to be talking about the subject of adoption. My wife and I, for those of you that don't know, or really our whole family, um, we've had a lot of experience in this, um, not all good. Um, A little over three years ago, almost four now, man, time goes fast. But um, my wife and I, our family, went into the process of adoption for a little girl named Ellen who lives in Uganda. Um, Ellen was part of an abusive family, one of many kids who was beaten by an alcoholic dad and, and just all sorts of issues there in Uganda, ran away from an abusive household, ended up in the sex trade, had to run away from there. And just by the grace of God, one day was walking down this street in Embraer, Uganda, and heard music coming out of this building, worship music, and just went in. Interestingly enough, the name of that place was Oasis of Hope, our sister church there in Uganda. And she found great hope there and and walked in and, and was taken in by the pastor there as she was found, even as the service ended and everyone else was leaving, she was there in the back by herself just weeping, just a young teenager, And the pastor said to her then, he said, look, we will try to figure out what's going on. We'll see what we can do to help you, but we can't do anything right now because we're actually in preparation. Um, There's a group from America that's coming to stay with us for another week and a half or so. So you just stay with us here at the church. We'll take care of you and we'll deal with that later. And so some three days later, later I met Ellen and uh, my heart was gone instantly. Such a sweet kid. Didn't speak a word of English and Over time, as we got to know her and to know the situation, my wife and I went through the long, expensive, uh, but exciting process of adopting Ellen into our household. It was a lot. We went through everything. We went through the home studies. We went through everything. We had to take a certain amount of uh, classes, education, all of these things. And about a year later, the court date was established. Our attorney over there calls us up and says, hey, it's time. The court date is on such and such a day. Come on over here. And, and actually, we actually had a mission trip like two weeks before that. So I was in Uganda for two weeks preparing for all this stuff there with Ellen, had to turn around and leave to come home. And, and she was so, I remember she was so upset And I remember turning to John 14 where Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come again to you. And so I was just encouraging her, Ellen, it's only going to be a few days. I'm going home. I'm getting mom. And we're coming back and we're getting you. 
And I remember being so excited. I remember being on the plane, flying home from Uganda and thinking, like, what's this going to be like for her? How do you explain to a Ugandan an airplane? I mean, all of the things. When we land in, in Seattle, for example, how do you explain a city like Seattle to someone from Uganda? And we're just going through all that stuff, and we had all this anticipation and excitement. Anyone who's done adoption knows this. Like, you get filled with all of this, like, these plans. You're like, you want to do all these things. Like, I'm going to take her to Disneyland, and we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and I can't wait till she sees it. We'll take her to the movies for the first time. It's going to blow her mind. Like, all of those kinds of things. We're just so excited. Came home, got my wife, we flew back out there, we went to court, and that's where the nightmare started. Because there was a, they call them their probation officers. Here you might refer to them more as like a child services officer or something like that. Well, apparently, even though I had met with him, I had sat and shared a meal with him, and everything had been so good, we were laughing and joking, and he was like, no, everything looks great, we would love it if you're going to bring her back regularly. I mean, he was so excited, everything looked so awesome, but somewhere along the line, he was expecting a bribe, and we never knew, never knew. Honestly, if that's all it took, I would have paid it. I totally would have. And so when we came to court, and it was time to go in there, the probation report from this man had not yet been turned in. And we kept waiting and waiting. We're calling and calling. We need the report. We need the report. Court's in an hour. We need the report. Five minutes before the case begins, someone walks into our attorney, hands her a sheet of paper. She looks at it, and I saw her face just change. And she looked over at her uh, co-counsel or whatever it was, her, her paralegal, whatever they called it there in Uganda, and said some things, put the report in her briefcase and never pulled it out again. And I knew there was a problem. Something's wrong. I know what that was. And, and instantly, then we're called into the courtroom to go before the judge, and I just knew something's not right. And so we went in there and we pled our case. They had found her father. They brought the parents in, and her parents completely changed all of their testimony at the last minute. We don't know why she left. We love her. She's in a caring home. Turns out someone had gotten into their ear and said, if you admit to any of the stuff that's happened, they're going to get you for abuse. So they changed everything. The night before, they were asking if I would trade them a cell phone for their daughter. And now they're changing their story completely. And it just something wasn't right. And the judge, he just kept thinking, and he's processing through all this stuff, but he's not saying anything encouraging. He's not even looking at us. He's not even talking to us. And then he begins writing. And for a long time, we just sat there, and he just wrote and wrote and wrote on this piece of paper. And then he picks it up, and he begins to read it, and it was his decision. And I'm thinking, no, 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 not decision yet. There's been no smiles. You haven't hardly talked to us. It, it, it's got to be too soon. There's no way this is good. And sure enough, he says... I don't believe, I don't have a probation report here, and because I don't have that report, I have no evidence that we've done as much as we can for her here in Uganda. I have no doubt the Hensleys would be great parents, but I'm rejecting the adoption. No appeal. What followed was horrific, wailing, crying. Ellen was beside herself. All the Ugandans that had come from that church there who had come to court to celebrate, now everyone's crying. And if you've ever been around Ugandans, you know they wear emotions really close to their sleeves. And so once one starts crying, man, it was just boom. And my wife and I were just absolutely distraught. I remember God speaking to me, though, in that very moment, just saying over and over, I am enough, I am enough, I am enough. And that brought me hope, but I was heartbroken. And so when I talked to the attorney, pulled her aside, she said, I couldn't turn the report in. 
I said, what, you had the report? Why couldn't you turn it in? What could possibly have been on that report that you couldn't show it to the judge? Because he just said, I can't do this without the report. And she showed me, and I'll never forget the last words, word for word, on the end of that probation report. It said, when one looks at the Hensley family, we must assume that the only reason they want Ellen in their home is to be a common house slave. And so it was over. No opportunity to appeal. Um, she's over 18 now. We could always go get her now, but now we've lost those nurturing years. And with all of the horrific things that she's been through and us having young children of our own, it just didn't seem like it was right. And honestly, we've never felt like the Lord was telling us to now go do this again. We have no doubt we were told to go do that then, though. No doubt. I mean, God taught us so much about him and so much about the world and about mission and about reaching out to those who are suffering. I remember Pastor John there in Uganda telling me, now you know what it's like to be a Ugandan more than anyone else, to not have a voice. And so it's increased my heart. It even increased our heart for adoption. Since then, we've been part of the foster care program. We bought a num- brought a number of kids into our house. And, and right now, we're actually in the um, process of adoption again, just waiting for a child placement, but through foster care, just the money that was spent to do that before and have that rejected, it was astronomical. And so to be able to get that to go back overseas again just didn't look like what's going to happen. And so now we're sort of in this limbo process. It's taking way longer than we thought, even wrestling with maybe we should try to fundraise and go overseas. But um, appreciate your prayers for our family in that. But this is something that I share all that just to share with you. This is something that is deeply personal to me, deeply personal to our family. And because many of you were here when that happened and walked through that with us, many of you have said it wasn't like it was just something that happened to you. This was something our church went through in that time. And so for a lot of us, this is a deeply personal issue. I see people even here that I know that work with CASA and work with foster care families. I know this is a big deal. And and after that happened, I got the opportunity to read a book that I would highly recommend to you, especially after this sermon, if this touches your heart, if it's something you want to look into more and more. But there's a guy by the name of Russell Moore. He's a pastor from back east, uh, Southern Baptist, I think, I'm not positive, and, and he wrote a book called Adopted for Life about his family walking through an international adoption they did in Russia and what they learned about God's love for them through that. It's an incredible book. And I just want to share an excerpt with you before we get started from this book where they were required in Russia to actually go to Russia, to the orphanage, and every day for like a week straight, they would have to go to the orphanage and spend time with these two one-year-old boys that they were adopting. And then they would go home at night, come back the next day. You're required by law to do that for about a period of a week. Then at the end of that time, you fly back home and you wait for your court date and then come and actually do the adoption. It involves two trips. It's not super uncommon. Every country's different. There's always hoops to jump through. And he was writing about the difficulty of coming in day after day but having to leave these children behind and then ultimately having to leave after that. And he writes this. When Maria and I first walked into the orphanage where we were led to the boys by the Russian, that the Russian courts had picked out for us to adopt, we almost vomited in reaction to the stench and the squalor of this place. The boys were in cribs in the dark, lying in their own waste. Leaving them at the end of the day was painful, but leaving them on that final day before going home to wait for paperwork to go through was the hardest thing we've ever done. Walking out of the room to prepare for the plane ride home, Maria and I could hear Maxim crying out for us and falling in his crib, convulsing in tears. My wife shook with tears of her own, so I turned around and I walked back to their room just for a minute. 
And I placed my hand on both their heads and I said, knowing that they couldn't understand a word of English, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I don't think I consciously intended to cite Jesus' words to his disciples in John 14, but it did seem like the only thing worth saying at the time. For us, it didn't matter that they seemed like any other orphan in that horrible place. They were our family now. We knew them. We loved them. When Marie and I, at long last, received the call that the legal process was over, we returned to Russia to pick up our new sons, but we found that the transition from orphanage to family was much more difficult than we'd ever supposed. We dressed the boys in outfits that our parents had bought for them. We nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel, and we walked out into the sunlight to the absolute terror of the two boys. They had never seen the sun before. They had never felt the wind. They had never seen shadows, and they were wiping them off their arm as if they were bugs. They had never heard the sound of a car door slamming or felt like they were being carried along a road at 100 miles an hour. I noticed that they were shaking and reaching back over and over to the orphanage in the distance. And so I whispered to them, that place is a pit. If you only knew what was waiting for you. At home, there's mommy and daddy and grandparents and cousins and great-grandparents and playmates and happy meals. But all they knew was the orphanage. It was horrible, but they had no other reference point. The orphanage was home. We knew the boys had acclimated to our home, that they trusted us when they stopped hiding food in their high chairs. They knew there would be another meal coming. They wouldn't have to fight for scraps. This was the new normal, and now they are thoroughly Americanized, probably too much. They're able to recognize the ding of a microwave from 40 yards away. But I still remember those little hands reaching back to that awful place, and I see myself there. Let's pray. God, we ask that your word would wash over us this morning. Lord, in particular this morning, I pray that this would not be in any way some intellectual study. God, may we know your heart for us. May we know your love for us. May we know our position with you. May we be amazed at the grace that you've poured out. So God, we bow before you right now and ask that your spirit would have its way with us this morning, that you would move in this room that, Lord, you would speak through a wretch such as me to showcase your amazing, glorious grace. God, as we always pray, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O my King, my Rock, and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Galatians 3, I'm going to start in Galatians 3, verse 25, and I'm going to read through verse 7, and we'll get going here. It says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. 
In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So, Jeff, we get it. Adoption's a big deal in your heart. We can tell you're even emotional being up there. Suck it up, dude. We'd like to get home in a decent hour and watch the games. Come on, man, adoption, I get it. It's a big deal to you. But really, like, why is it such a big deal? Aren't you just pushing something you're into onto us like you always try to do with North Carolina basketball? Like, really? Isn't that what you're doing? No, guys, it's so much more than that. Let let me read to you a quote. If you've never read Knowing God by J.I. Packer, I cannot commend a book maybe more to you than this one, one that would serve you well. And in it, he has an entire chapter about the idea of fatherhood and adoption of God. And he writes this. Do we have the quote? Do we have the slide for that? Did I send slides? We do? There we go. Couldn't remember. What is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer that I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. The truth of our adoption gives us the deepest insights the New Testament affords of the greatness of God's love. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. J.I. Packer might be the most preeminent theologian still alive today, and this book, Knowing God, is probably the most important theological work done in our lifetime. And in it, he says, the best way to answer the question, what is a Christian, he says, is one who has God as Father. It's the most complete and simple definition that there is. And he goes on to say that if you want to know, if you want to understand Christianity, your understanding of your faith and what we believe cannot exceed your understanding of the principle of adoption. Why is that so important? Because right now in this room are tons of people that wrestle with doubt and fear and skepticism regarding God's love for them. Oh, you, you, you know about it. You've read about it. You believe the Bible verses about it. We sing about it. But, but in those quiet, personal times when it's just you and the Lord, oftentimes when maybe you feel it's just you, there's many of us in this room that have wrestled for our lives with the idea of God's love for them. Feeling good some days, less others, maybe skeptical about how God feels. Maybe you feel like God really loves that guy as you look around the room. And I can see why God would choose that person, but I think he's kind of stuck with me. Maybe you even sing songs about God's love for you in hope. Like in hope that one day it will stick. In hope that it's true. But deep down, maybe you don't know. Or maybe you're like me, and you grew up with a dad who your relationship with your father did nothing to serve you with regards to understanding your love, your love from your heavenly father. Maybe like me, you grew up with a dad where if you were to characterize most of your interactions with him growing up, you constantly felt like you were more of a frustration. 
Maybe you grew up with a dad who never seemed to have a whole lot of time for you. There was always something more important to do. And that now flavors and colors the way that you see your relationship with God. He's important. He's got a lot of things going on. He's a big deal. You're not. And so really, he doesn't think too much of you, if at all. He's sort of stuck with you because, well, the gospel's for lots of people. But overall, he's probably frustrated with you. I mean, our failures, our screw-ups, our sin that just continues and all these things, the millions of promises maybe some of us have made to God over and over and over through our lives. Lord, I will never do that again. And then to look back and go, of course he's frustrated with us. Those things affect the way that we understand and read God's love for us. And the thing that will transform your understanding of God's love for you more than anything else, I'm absolutely convinced, is the understanding of the adoption as sons into the family, into the kingdom, to be the adopted child of God. And this is where Galatians chapter 4 is a gift from God to us. It's so amazing that it's this beautiful um, understanding thrown right in the middle of what's actually a pretty fiery letter. But, but here in this particular passage, as we consider this, I, I pray that you would understand the beautiful gift that God has given us in this. We're going to spend our time, though I started in verse 25, and we may reach back and grab a few things. The the bulk of our time is going to be here in Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7, and we're really just going to break it up into three simple, simple sections. The first three verses, Galatians 4, verse 1 through 3, we're going to look at our prior condition. Our prior condition. Then in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5, we're going to look at God's gracious provision. And then in verses 6 through 7, we're going to look at the experience of adoption. So Galatians 4 starts and says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. In the same way also, when we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Now there's a problem going on in Galatia. If you're new with us, this would bear repeating. Paul started this church many years ago, or these churches, I should say, in the region of Galatia. It's what we would call Turkey today. Paul started these churches built on the foundation, the bedrock, the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of grace. That's what he had come and taught them. This is a man who grew up a Pharisee of Pharisee. Like he knew the law backwards and forwards and his entire life was focused on trying to keep it until he met Jesus. And then everything changed. And then Paul becomes the champion of grace. And so he comes into this area of Galatia and he plants these churches on this foundation that you're not saved by what you do. You're not saved by how hard you work. You're not saved by how well you keep the law or what your performance is. We are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for our sin on the cross on our behalf. And if we simply put our faith in him, we are forgiven, we are saved, we are accepted by God, we are granted admission to the kingdom of heaven. It's this incredible principle that every part, all of the responsibility of our salvation is on the shoulders of Jesus Christ, who on the cross said it is finished, paid in full. Even wretches like Jeff, though he mess up over and over, and though he maybe should be a frustration to me over and over and over, I have forgiven him, I love him, and we see all of this in Jesus Christ. And so Paul goes into Galatia, and he starts a church on this principle. But then over time, they're affected 
by false teachers that come in. And he refers to it as if they've had a spell cast over them. He says in early in chapter 1, he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I mean, it's like he's saying, look, has someone cast some sort of spell over you? Because how in the world could you abandon this free gospel of grace to go back to this, this former way of living where you're enslaved? Because all their background, the Jewish background in particular, was built on we earn God's approval by how we follow these laws, these commandments. Our relationship with Him depends on us and our ability to live the kind of life that God wants. And if we're nailing it, awesome. But if we're not, we're in trouble. This is what they were going back to. Because these false teachers come into Galatia and they're like, look, that gospel of grace is awesome. But look, Paul's new. He hasn't even been around since the beginning anyway. Doesn't always know what he's talking about. And here's the reality. Jesus is good. You need Jesus. Jesus is awesome. But Jesus alone is not enough to save you. Because to, not, to have Jesus and to not follow the law will bring God no pleasure. And so suddenly your salvation, though, it's almost like you're in the door by God's grace, but you stay in the room by your efforts. And if you were to fail at keeping the law, or even the ceremonial laws, they're being told they have to go through the cleansing rituals and circumcision and convert to Judaism. They have to do all these things to find approval from God. All that rests on their shoulders. And if they don't pull this off, then God's not okay. God's not happy with them, and they have no favor at all. And so they're getting brought back into this burden of self-performance. Like, I have to do these things, or God's upset with me. This is what they go back to. And so Paul in Galatians 3, we looked at last week, says, look, to submit yourselves back under the law again makes no sense. He talks about the fact that the law was a guardian. He brings it up again here in chapter 4. The law was a guardian, or we might think nanny to some degree, that, that has been placed in authority over you to guide you, to make sure you get to school, to make sure you eat your meals, to make sure you do your homework, to make sure that you grow up into a place of maturity. But the maturity part is not that you're nailing it with regards to the law, because Paul goes on to say, you're not gonna. The the law was meant to show you that you can't possibly pull this off on your own, that you need a savior. And coming to a place of maturity in our faith is not that we're nailing it all the time. It's that we understand our dependence in Jesus and that all of our faith, all of our efforts, everything is completely focused on him and that we have completely surrendered. That's why even Jesus himself would teach, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It means the morally or the, excuse me, the spiritually bankrupt. Those that realize I can't possibly do this. I have nothing in me. I have no ability to to do anything about my spiritual life. It is all on Jesus. Paul's like, why would you leave that? Why would you grow up under the guardian to a place of maturity and then resubmit yourself under this? And, And Paul says, when you're doing this, it's not a place of maturity. You're a slave. This is what he says here in chapter 4. You're a slave. You, you've, you, you've not, even, if you're an, even though you're an heir of God, you're part of God's family, you're living as a slave again. What does he mean by that? You're under constant rule, constant supervision, constantly forced to perform or else. There's no joy. You have no access to inheritance. You have no power, authority, anything on your own. You're being led around by a leash. You might as well be a slave. Why would you submit yourself back to this? And then Paul says in verse 3 that this is who we all were. This was our condition. So how were we slaves? Well, we were slaves to sin. 
We have this sin nature born in us, and no matter how hard we try, we have no power to overcome it. We may have good days, but we always are going to have bad days too, and we are servants to sinful flesh before Christ. And then also, we are slaves to the law. That those of us who have come to understand God's rule and God's law, then we end up in this place where, okay, because I'm sinful, now I need to do something about it. I need to make up for it somehow. And it's this this constant burden and pressure on our shoulders. Our relationship with God becomes more like some sort of diet. Like we're nailing it and we feel good, but then when you blow it, I can't eat tomorrow because I've got to make up for what happened yesterday. And we all know it just doesn't work that way. And so Paul's like, look, this is who you are. You're a slave to sin because you have no power to get out from under it, but you're a slave to the law and you can't possibly do anything about that either, which means what? We are stuck. We're just plain stuck. But then in verse 4, one of the greatest words in all of the Bible, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is the turning point in the history of the world. That when the time was fulfilled, God sent forth his son. That before that happened, we had no hope whatsoever. We were stuck and there was no getting out of it. We were in the miry clay. We were in the pit. There was no chance we'd get out of this. And then God sends forth his son. There's a couple things to notice about this. The first is this. God makes the initiative. Just like any adoption The initiative is always done on behalf of the adoptive parents. No child initiates an adoption procedure with the family. It always begins with the family saying, we want to adopt you. And this is what happened here. God is the one who moved towards us. There's a a beautiful quote about this in speaking on this very passage by that great preacher, Charles Spurgeon. And listen to what he said. Observe. Concerning the first advent that the Lord was moving in it towards man. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. We moved not toward the Lord, but the Lord moved toward us. I do not find that the world in repentance sought after its maker. No, but the offended God himself in infinite compassion broke the silence and came forth to bless us, his enemies." All good things begin with God. But think about this. And we're using the analogy of of adoption and orphans that Paul puts forth here. But but don't make no mistake, before God moved towards us, we weren't simply orphans to be pitied. We were enemies deserving God's wrath. Romans tells us that Jesus died for us while we were his enemies. We had rebelled in our sinfulness against God and his goodness. So we weren't just neutral orphans. We were enemies with God, but yet God sent his son forth to do what? To redeem us from slavery, Paul says in verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law. That in the same way that slaves could be redeemed and bought even to set free, we too are set free by Jesus Christ and his act. When God sent forth his son, Jesus lived that perfect, sinless life and then went to the cross 
all the penalty of our sin was placed upon the shoulders of Jesus. That's why he said, it is finished. He paid all of it. Not one cent is left for us to deal with on our own. There is no drop of anything left in the Father's cup. Jesus drank every single drop so that we might be set free. That is beautiful. That is incredible. But that's not the best part. Like most people, when you ask them, hey, tell me the gospel. For most of us, when we think about what the gospel is, our definition and description of the gospel stops too soon and we forget the best part. It, it wasn't just that Jesus came to redeem us and set us free, He did. Justification, that's the Christian word for that, the theological word for that, that we have been set free from the penalty of our sin as if we had never sinned again. Our record has been expunged. We are clean. He has passed over all of our sins. That is beautiful. But he didn't just do that just to set us free and say, okay, Jeff, good job. Go along on your way. You're free. That there was a purpose behind the idea of redemption. That what Jesus came to do, justification wasn't the end. For Jesus, the justification of us was a means to an end. And what was the end? It was adoption. You were forgiven so that he could bring you in. You were set free so that he could bring you in. The, the peak, if you will, was not the fact that he forgave us of our sins, but he forgave us of our sins so that he could make us his family. That's the peak. And I'm not making that up. It's right here in the text. Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that... This redeeming act was done for one reason. It's because God wanted us in his family that we might receive the adoption as sons. And the gospel is so much bigger than just saying Jesus forgave us of our sins. He forgave us of our sins so that he could make us his child. And that's the best part. Think about this. J.I. Packer, you can put the quote up again, goes on to write about this. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary need. We need forgiveness of our sins more than anything else in the world. But contrast this now with adoption, a family idea conceived in terms of love, viewing God as father. He establishes us as children and heirs. Closeness, perfection, and generosity are at the heart. To be right with God the judge is a great thing but to be loved and cared for by the Father is greater. Man, don't ever stop your description of the gospel with God forgave us of our sins. We go on to say, and we are his children. The gospel is not just about forgiveness of sins, it's about being wanted. Do you know that? Like you are wanted by God. That's the issue. That's why he did all that, because he wants you. The, the problem is a lot of our life experiences don't help us even understand that because there's people in this room that most of your life you haven't felt wanted. Whether it's regarding relationships with your own parents or abuses that you've been through or rejections or betrayals or something as simple as Little League. Garrison Keeler writes this incredible story that so gets to the heart of this. And he uses the analogy of the little kid being picked last for a sports team. Maybe some of us have been there. He says this, They chose the popular ones first, and now the choice is hard because we're all so much the same, not so hot. 
And then we're down to the last grudging choices, a slow kid for catcher and someone to stick out in right field where nobody hits it. He goes on to say, they choose the last ones two at a time, you and you, because it makes no difference. And the remaining kids, the scrubs, the excess, they deal for as handicaps. If I take him, then you got to take him. Sometimes I go as high as sixth, usually lower, but just once I'd like the captain to pick me first, to say, him, I want him, the skinny kid with glasses and the black shoes, come on. But I've never been chosen with much enthusiasm. I've never been chosen with much enthusiasm. That perfectly describes, sadly, so many of our understanding and experience in Christianity. Like, we believe we're gods, maybe. God has taken us. I don't mean we're gods. I mean, God's. He owns. He has taken us. But do we, do we really believe that he's chosen us with enthusiasm? Maybe, like I said, the, the kind of relationship you had with your father, much like mine, makes you feel more like a frustration. Like you're in the family, but there's better things to do. Or maybe you feel like that kid, well, they're all here. We have to pick somebody, so fine, no difference. I'll take you too. But we can look around the room, and we can see others. Well, that guy can teach, or that guy can lead worship, or that guy does this, and that gal does that. And so, of course, God wants them, but I'll be the right fielder looking for four-leaf clovers in the middle of the kickball game. That, honestly, that's how most people believe God views them that he's stuck with them because he enacted this gospel thing to take a whole lot of people. But when it comes to you, God just got stuck with us. He'll put up with us. I guess I should be happy just to be on the team. That's most people's understanding. But listen, the gospel informs us differently because we understand the price that was paid for us to be, if you will, on the team. One of the great evils, I believe, in the world, one of the great sins in the world is the fact that there are so many families that would easily open up their home for a child, and there are so many children who need homes, but the cost in so many cases is so astronomical that we can't take these two and actually put them together. But Jesus paid the price for our adoption in full, and it was infinitely more than some $20,000 or whatever they end up costing overseas adoptions these days or whatever ridiculous fees they are at this point. Like, when you understand the reality of the gospel and what Jesus Christ went through on the cross for your behalf, you can only come away with one understanding. You were chosen enthusiastically. When you see what Jesus went through so that you could be part of his family, don't look at this as some begrudging thing. We must understand that you have been chosen with great enthusiasm. And and you can think about other passages with relation to this. I told you myself, like when we were looking to adopt Ellen, we had so many plans. We're going to do this and we're going to do this. I could not wait to get her on an airplane and those international flights. They have the screen on the back of all the chairs and there's tons of movies available. I could not wait to sit there to put headphones on her ears and start a Pixar movie or something like that. And I was so excited to do that kind of stuff. I was thrilled to go over there. Didn't the cost didn't matter? We would have paid that we would have paid whatever we had to to get her. We wanted her in the family so much. And then doesn't that make sense when we start to see and understand that God is our Father and when we understand things like God saying, eye has not seen, ear has not heard the things that I have planned for those who love me. It's the same thing. 
He's brought you into the family enthusiastically, and he's like, I want to show you things. I want you to experience things. I want to teach you things. I want to pour blessing into you because you're my child and because I desire you. Your sins weren't just forgiven because you needed it. Your sins were forgiven because God wanted you. That is a massive truth. But our ability to understand that and believe that will depend completely on where we look for proof. Because our tendency is to go, God wanted me? Why would God want me? And then our tendency is to look inward to try to find the reason. God wants me because. God wants me because. But here's the truth of it. Where you look for that understanding will make all the difference in the world because if you try to look within yourself to find reason why God would want you that much, you won't find it. You'll find frustration and disappointment and failure and sin, and all it does is build more and more and more and more doubt. It fuels our frustration, our believing God is frustrated with us, but when we look to the cross and we see the price that Jesus Christ paid on our behalf to bring us in, when we keep our eyes fixed on him, the author and the finisher of our faith, that's where we find hope, that's where we find assurance in our, founda- in our, our, our position with him. To understand that God adopted me, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me? Why would he pick me? I have no idea. That is the great mystery of Jeff Hensley in the universe. Why would he pick Jeff? No clue. But he did. But because Jeff was worth picking? No, 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 no. Even the scriptures say Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we would be called sons of God. You know what that means? It's like, figure this out. (laughs) What kind of love that we, me, would be a child of God? Why? I have no idea, but praise God for it. Praise God for it. We should be absolutely convinced this day of God's love for us when we see what he would go through to bring us into his family. God loves you. And the the days before your salvation, and for those of you that have not yet given your heart to Jesus, you got to understand, he's waiting for you. He's calling you. He's like the adoptive parent who can't wait to get that child into their home, to take them into their room for the first time. Doesn't the Bible say something along those lines? I've gone to do what? To prepare a place for you. You know what that means literally in the Jewish day? For We're Americans and we have our own individual houses and so we always translate that differently and we go, God has gone to prepare mansions for us. It's really silly if you think about it, but that's what we do, we're Americans, fine. But in the culture at that time, that's not what it meant. To prepare a place for you meant the Father has a home, he's bringing you in and we're gonna build an add-on addition, you're gonna have a room right here in the Father's house. That's what it meant. And so when Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come again. I've gone to prepare a place for you. It's like an adoptive parent who's already decorating the room. I'm going to get Jeff's bed. Jeff's going to get Superman, Batman, I don't know, whichever, Tar Heel stuff. I'm going to get toys for Jeff. I remember people contacting us before Ellen's adoption. Are you going to need clothes? What do you need? Even other people in the church were excited to be part of this and just to bless this kid when she got here. That's how God feels about you. He's excited to be with you. 
The day before you got saved, he was with anticipation waiting for you to make that call. And if you have not given your life to God right now, you gotta know he's waiting for you. For you. Not us, but you. God loves us so much. And we know this personal part of it as we go into this last section. The experience of adoption, Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We see here that adoption is a Trinitarian event. It's the result of God the Father's initiative, of Jesus the Son's action, and the Holy Spirit's work put within us. That we see the whole Godhead at work, and the product of the Holy Spirit's life in in the children of God is that this voice suddenly appears within those who are his that says, Abba, Father. This voice that cries out in love. Romans 8.15, Paul says this, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Do you still fear, even though you hear all that stuff about adoption and all this kind of stuff, do you still fear, yeah, but, but what if God doesn't really love me? What if that adoption thing's for somebody else? What if I'm not even part of the family? Maybe I'm not even saved. All those doubts and things that you wrestle with, and let me encourage you with this. If you love God, if you can, with an honest heart, cry out and say, God, I love you, then here's what you got to know. That cry did not originate with you. That is a cry that God, by his Holy Spirit, has put inside you. And even that is evidence of the fact that you are his. The Bible goes on to say that we love, why? Because he first loved us. Further evidence that you're part of the family of God. And so it's important that we ask, does our spirit cry out to our Father? Does your heart cry out to God? But here's the the awesome thing about this particular passage, these last two verses. In everything Paul has said in the entire book of Galatians up until chapter 6, everything's plural. We, us, the church, corporate. It's all these broad terms talking about a big group of people who have been brought into fellowship. But in verse 6, it changes. It's singular. It's personal. It's as if God is leaning in to look you personally in the eye and say, but you. Corporately, this is what I've done, but you. You have received the Spirit. You are sons. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And then He says to you, you are no longer a slave. You are my son. And then the sentence even gets better. You're not a slave. You're a son. But a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now here's what's amazing. In the ancient world, if you didn't have a son, which wasn't uncommon, if you only had daughters, you didn't have a son, then adoption was a normal process then. Usually, you would adopt someone who was already of age, bring them into the family after a pretty rigorous, like, even interview, like, we want to weed things out. But the idea was, I don't have a son to leave all of my stuff to. I don't have an heir, so I'm going to bring a son into the family that they might become my heir. But here's the thing. God made us heirs, but listen, he already had a son. He already had a son. And he willingly gave up that son on the cross that you, not church whole, if I I wish I had enough fingers, but you might become adopted sons of God. What a great mystery that is. What an unbelievable truth that is. I believe 
that God would have every single one of us leave this place convinced, absolutely assured of our place with him today. You may not understand a ton of theology. You may not have been hitting it out of the park lately with with everything. You might be dealing with sin right now. There's all sorts of things you may or may not be wrestling with, but you can know this, that if you have put your faith in Jesus, you are an adopted son of God. And you know, one of the things that's funny, if you ever talk to an adopted family, I'll give you guys a tip so you won't feel dumb when you're talking to them. I'll give you a tip because people do this. They'll come up if they know that you adopt. And adopted families will tell you about this all the time. They'll go, okay, so which ones are your real children? Never say that to an adoptive family. You know why? They never make such a distinction. And that's how God feels about us, gang. Which one are your real? I mean, there's Jesus and there's the others. No, he says, you're joint heirs with Jesus. You are part of the family, sons of God. The book of John even starts out the first theological promise it gives us. It says that we have the power, if we believe in him, to be called sons of God. So you can leave this place with total assurity. You don't have to be like those little boys in that adoption story, reaching back for this stuff of old in fear of what lies ahead, but instead you can leave this place today in 100% assurity saying, I am God's. I'm still blowing it. I'm still wrestling with stuff. I still have doubts and fears and insecurities all over the place, but I am God's. And you need to be able to leave this place knowing that you being in the family of God makes all the difference in the world. So we're going to close with some worship here in just a minute. I'm going to ask that the elders and the huddle leaders that are here would just be available in the back or maybe over here on the sides. And listen, if you're wrestling with doubt, will you let them pray with you? If you've never given your faith to Jesus, will you let them pray with you? But you've got to know, regardless of what your dad was like, we're about to sing, we have a good, good father. And he has gone through, literally has gone through hell to pave the way for you to be part of the family of God. And we don't have to leave this place in fear or worry anymore. We can leave this place in total trust and assurance that God is in control, that we are his and that we are safe in his arms. Russell Moore's story goes on to say this. I want to go back to Russia One day, I want to go back to that Russian orphanage, and this time with my two boys. I want them to see the conditions of that horrible place. I imagine they'll be horrified, just like I was. But more than anything, I want to see my two sons, my heirs, walk out of that place again. This time, with their backs turned to that orphanage, staring straight ahead into the sun with joy. Let's pray. Will you stand with me? God, in these last few minutes that we have here together, I pray that your spirit would just move through this place and encourage the hearts of believers in this room. So many of us have wrestled with doubt and insecurity so many times in our life. But for today, God, will you renew our faith? Give us the ability to believe this truth, not because we deserve it, but to put our trust in you, our good Father, that we are yours. May the voice of condemnation that Satan wants to whisper in our ears telling us that we're not good enough, may it be silenced, God. And may we just hear the whisper 
that still small voice from you, our loving Father, in our ear. God, I thank you for this truth. And Lord, there's people in this room I know that have not given their lives to you and that right now their heart's beaten and they're nervous and they're fearful, but they want to be in the family. God, will you strengthen even their legs that they might walk to meet with one of our people here, Lord, and pray that they might be brought into the family of God, that they might put their faith in you, Jesus Christ, and that they might be like us, adopted into your family. And Lord, as we sing, would your spirit infuse our hearts that we might sing, Abba, Father, that we might join with the voice of your spirit in us and with all of creation that cries out to you. In Jesus' name.